Good morning. Let's pray. God, as we uh, once again dig into Hebrews, this dense, ornate, uh, almost overstuffed book, this book that is so full of, of truth about who you are, Jesus, about what you have come to do, about your relationship to us, about your qualifications, about your character. Uh, help us again, God, to enter into your presence, to be boldly confident in our ability to step in to the most holy place, to be in deep personal relationship with you, both on our own and together as a body. As we listen to your word, as we explore uh, Hebrews chapter 10 today, God, I pray as I often do, that there would be something for each of us here, that for all of us, we would walk away from this with uh, a piece, a taste, a seed uh, that would grow in our hearts, that your word would bring life as it does, as you promise that it does. Help us to be faithful as we seek to listen. In your name, amen. So today we are continuing through our series uh, in Hebrews, and we come this week, uh, like I said in my prayer, to chapter 10. For the last many chapters of the book, uh, the author of this book has covered uh, this idea of Jesus as high priest. We looked at this last week as we covered chapter 7, and through 8 and 9, he continues to build and expand this idea of Jesus as priest overall, as a replacement and an enhancement for the system that had come before. And I compared last week, I compared the concept of a priest to that of a mechanic, someone who fixes things, diagnoses issues, someone who serves as a mediator and a translator between me and my engine, who helps me uh, to run properly, to my car to run properly, or as a lawyer who gives wise counsel, who goes before a judge who represents us, who is our representative uh, and who advocates for us. And the big concept Last week was the same as the concept has been throughout the whole of the book is that Jesus is greater. That's the main title for our series. He's, he's greater than the angels. He's a greater leader. He gives greater rest, and he's a greater priest. And we talked last week about the completeness of Jesus' victory. Unlike human priests, unlike animal sacrifices, which are, which are good and, and God-given tools for us, but not perfect, they're band-aid solutions, Jesus saves completely, and Jesus saves forever. That verse towards the end of Hebrews chapter 7 that we sort of camped out in at the end of the message, Hebrews 7.25 was this, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. It's a beautiful statement of the full and complete ongoing salvation that we receive through Christ. Jesus is the permanent and perfect and completely effective solution to sin. So as we get into chapter day, 10 today, he is still building and expanding on these ideas. And as I begin our message, I want to take a bit of time now uh, at the beginning of this chapter. We're going to end up really focusing in on later verses here, verses 19 to 25. But the author of Hebrews is continuing to build on this ornate and multi-layered 
argument, and he makes two additional points here that I want to touch on, that I think even as we have been covering uh, this concept of Christ's supremacy for many weeks, as we've looked at the priesthood already last week, this still helps us understand these things and get grounded in these things in a deeper and more complete way. So the first is this. Hebrews 10.1 says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And that idea of a shadow, I think, really helps us to grab onto and understand this concept. Colossians 2.17 uses the same imagery. It tells us that the feasts and the rituals and the, and the Sabbath day and the old things are only a shadow of things to come, but the body or the substance of these things is Christ. And I was trying to figure out how to sort of flesh out this analogy, and, and what came to my mind was actually gift cards. I love gift cards. I love to get them. I, I love to give them. And most of us have received gift cards in our lives to, to an experience or a hotel or a, or a restaurant or a store. But if you're anything like me, then this is what happens. You receive the card, and you love it, and, and you maybe even make plans for how you're going to use it, and then you put it somewhere safe. Maybe a sock drawer or your desk or, or even the glove compartment of your vehicle, and then it sits there, maybe for years. I, I remember we got a gift card to the keg a few years ago, and I think we went to the keg three separate times specifically to use that gift card. But then as we were driving into the city, or as we were sitting down for our meal, or as we pulled out our wallets, we suddenly realized, oh, we left the card at home. Or it was way out in the vehicle, it was too far to go and get it, and so we paid for the meal normally. And then we'd start to proceed to think about the next time that we could go to the keg and use that gift card. This is obvious, but I'm going to say it plainly to drive the point home. The card is not the gift, right? The card is just a piece of plastic. It doesn't matter how good the steak looks on the card. You can't eat it, or at least you shouldn't eat it. It's got no nutritional value. The card is only valuable in that it represents the true gift, the experience, the restaurant or the hotel or the new power tool or the spa getaway. It doesn't do any good just sitting in your sock drawer. It's not the real thing. The author of Hebrews tells us, Paul builds on this in that Colossians verse, that the traditions and the laws, and the systems, the way that we do things, the rules that we have, they're good things, but they're shadows. And shadows exist because of a real thing, right? A shadow is there because something is making that shadow. It's proof that an actual object or an actual person exists, but it's got no substance unto itself. A gift card is proof of the gift, but by itself there is no substance. And so the author warns us, and it's a relevant warning for our times just as it was for the people in the Hebrew church, that we need to be careful about getting too attracted to or attached to or worshiping or becoming fixated on the shadow. The way that we do our Sunday morning service, the programs that we run, the systems that we have in place, even the rules that we follow, the, the ideas of right and wrong and ethics and behavior and justice and all of these important good things. Don't hear me saying this isn't good and important stuff, that it's not worth putting time and effort and energy and thought into, but they're shadows. They're shadows cast by the real thing, which is Jesus himself. These things can point us toward the true experience, the true person, but they're not a substitution. They have no substance in and of themselves. 
when the system or the rule or the tradition becomes more important than the person that we follow, that's like framing a gift card on a wall instead of cashing it in to partake in the real experience. The second thing that the author of Hebrews has to say in this first part of the chapter is this. Chapter 10 continues. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The old system is a never-ending cycle. It never resolves. It just keeps going and going and going and going and going at a huge cost. There are religious texts that suggest that hundreds of thousands of animals were sometimes sacrificed in a single day. One source I read said, this is almost unbelievable to me, but they said that around Jesus' time, it wasn't unusual that at Passover, 1.2 million sheep and goats were sacrificed in a single day. That's over a 16-hour day. That's two animals a second. Try to imagine for me the practical nature of that. Thousands and thousands of animals being killed by hundreds of of priests. Imagine the smell of that. Imagine the sounds of that. There are stories told of priests wading around knee-deep in blood as they kill animal after animal. Can you imagine how deeply you would feel the weight of your sin in that moment? How you would understand the cost of the choices that you had made? I'm trying to imagine how it would change your kids' behavior if they made a mistake when they sinned and we dragged a sheep into the backyard and say, see, this is what happens. This is what happens when you make a mistake. This is the result of your sin. It's enough to make your stomach turn. And yet it was never enough. Every day, every week, every year, sacrifices needed to be made for one thing or another. And when I say never enough, I mean that in two ways. First of all, it wasn't enough to change the behavior. As wretched as people felt, as repentant as they might have been in those moments, it wasn't that they left from there and then proceeded to sin no more. The next year, it all repeated. Second, sacrifices could only cover the past, not the future. It wasn't enough that way either. The moment the sacrifices were done, the tab starts building for the next time around. It would have been overwhelming. It would have been a constant reminder of guilt and uncleanliness and brokenness And that was the system. But Jesus has come. The author of Hebrews tells us, in the past, God worked one way. He spoke to us in one way. But that's all changed. Don't you understand? We don't need to do this anymore. We can get off the hamster wheel. Christ has saved us completely and forever. Can you imagine the relief of getting out of that system. For thousands of years, this was the only way to be made clean. This messy, bloody, ugly, violent thing. But Christ has solved this problem once and for all in a way that no one else, no other thing, no other idea, no other solution ever could. He set us free. And so with that in mind, with that foundational understanding, we come to our main text for the day, which is verses 19 to 25, Hebrews chapter 10, Verses 19 to 25, and I want to read them for you now. This is what it says. Therefore, 
Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us continue how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. All of Hebrews up to this point has been focused on what God has done for us. Who Jesus is, what his character is, what his qualifications are, what his relationship is to us. I heard a preacher speaking on Hebrews, and he talked about the idea that you can think of the book of Hebrews as a door. I might have talked about this before. It's a door that's being worked on, and for the first nine and a half chapters of this book, all they're doing is just carving the front of this door, making this ornate, beautiful masterpiece, this awe-inspiring work of art on the front of the door, showing us what is in store for us what we are being invited into. And now with this section of verses, with this, therefore, the door opens up. This passage is a hinge on which the book opens up. The invitation is extended. In light of what God is doing, who Jesus is, what he has done for us, in light of our new high priest who saves completely and saves forever, what now are you and I to do? Are we willing to walk through that door? And the remainder of the book pivots to us and what our response is to what God has done for us. We move forward from thought into action. And this is the rhythm for so much of New Testament Scripture. Many of Paul's books are formatted in just this way, starting off with the reminder of who God is, what God has done for us. Here's a spiritual truth about God. And then what follows is what we're being called to do. It's two sides to the equation, two different parts of the argument that balance each other like, like being on a teeter-totter. And, and so much of what goes wrong in Christian life or in the church happens when we balance too far on one side or the other of this teeter-totter. We can know deep spiritual truths, have, have chunks of Scripture memorized, be able to debate with the best of them, think deeply about God and His character. But if nothing changes in our lives or our actions or our relationships, then it's a hollow faith. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I can do all these things, but without love, it's a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal. It's useless. But the other side is true too. We can work and work and try to be good and to love and to have grace and to be patient and to develop all of these good fruits. But if we're not rooted in what Christ has first done for us, we're going to burn out and wither away. We need both sides of this. In these first verses... The author, the pastor, can't resist summarizing his argument one last time. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence. I love that, by the way. The fact that confidence is listed is stacked on this side of the teeter-totter. It's not something we're called to do or to achieve or to strive for, but rather it's something that God has done for us. We have the confidence, the boldness. It's not a call for us. It's a statement of what God has already given us. 
He continues and reminds us that we have the boldness. God has opened up a new and a living way for us to step in past the curtain into the holy place. That barrier is gone. It's destroyed. It's never to return. And so we have confidence through what God has done for us since we have a great priest, a high priest over the house of God. The author says, this is what we do. This is how we respond. And he gives us three statements that each begin with let us. He gives us three... I'm sorry, I wrote this down in my manuscript here. I almost can't bring myself to say it. Three heads of lettuce to digest. That is just... I'm not ready for preacher jokes that bad yet. It's a couple more years yet before I'm comfortable. Sorry. Three heads of lettuce that we can digest. (laughs) I hope you're still with me. What you'll notice as you go through these three statements is that they're really three sides to the same thing. These are three entry points into the same space, or three facets of the same gem. They draw us in in the same way. So we are called to draw near, we are called to hold fast, and we are called to encourage each other. Each of these things is a way in which we connect with and relate to and enter into the presence of Jesus, our high priest, our perfect sacrifice. God has made a way for us, and this is our response. First, let us draw near. This is what the author says. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. In the Old Testament, when people came into the presence of God, it was terrifying. You see it over and over again. For example, in Exodus 19, it tells the story of Moses preparing to meet God on Mount Sinai, God preparing to come down onto this mountain, and they have to rope off and put up barriers around the mountain just to make sure that Israelites don't accidentally wander too close. Otherwise, they will be obliterated by this holiness, by the presence of God. God is totally untouchable, unapproachable, to a level where it is deadly to get too close to his presence. But the author of Hebrews, a couple of chapters later in chapters 12, he, he speaks about this moment in Scripture and he highlights how their experience has changed. He says this, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can now be in intimate, close, face-to-face relationship with God our Father. Jesus has mediated a way. He has torn the curtain. We can draw near. We can approach. We can have a taste of heaven. 
We can have a deep personal relationship with God. And we can do this because our hearts have been cleansed. Our guilt has been released. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. That's a baptism reference. Our old selves have died. The old systems have died. And there is a new way of being alive in Jesus Christ. And as we are alive in him, we can draw near to him with the bold confidence he has given us. Because through his Holy Spirit, God lives in us. It's an incredible promise. Point number two. Let us number two. Let us hold fast. The NIV says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. But many translations simply say, let us hold fast. And this is the main issue that we've been coming across in Hebrews, right? Some of you might remember in the second message on this sermon and angels talking about the danger of drifting, our need for an anchor, our need to have something to grab onto, to keep us stable in the midst of a storm. And this is a theme throughout the book of Hebrews, that word hold fast or hold unswervingly. It shows up a couple of times in Scripture, but mostly we see it here in this book. Many times through the book, the author calls us, hold fast, hold fast. If you're in a situation, good or bad, and someone says, hold on tight, that's something you take seriously, right? That's good advice to follow. I can tell my boys a hundred different times and in a hundred different ways to pick up their toys or, or, or to come for supper or to turn off that video game, but with a two-year-old, uh, and even with a five-year-old sometimes, it's, it's hit or miss, right? How well they listen, how many times that has to be repeated. But if they're on a teeter-totter or a merry-go-round or, or, or a jungle gym monkey bars, and I tell them, hold on tight, it takes one statement. They're gripping onto the closest hold for dear life. If someone is telling you to hold on to something, there's a good reason to hold on to it. Usually because there's danger. If you let go, it will take effort and intentionality to keep you where you are supposed to be. It is important to hold on. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this passage, writes, That exhortation, let us hold fast, may well be written on the cover of every Christian's Bible. We live in such a changeful age that we all need to be exhorted or to be reminded or to be called to be rooted and grounded and confirmed and established in truth. And let me say this too, with the week that we've had with so many of our families in the church going through just a really difficult transition right now again with schools moving back to online learning, with many families of school-aged children needing to isolate for a time with tension and frustration regarding COVID, both the virus and the vaccines and the rules and the regulations and, and so much tension just existing in the world in general. The headlines about Israel and Palestine are just another reminder of how broken our world is. There's something beautifully simple about this then. Like the kid on a merry-go-round, life is spinning, things don't always make sense, there's chaos. All you need to do is hold fast. Draw near to God and then hold on, because he has got this. The author in Hebrews says he is faithful. Just briefly, there's a passage in Genesis 15. I preached on it maybe a year or so ago. It's become one of my favorite moments in Scripture where God covenants with Abraham, and in this covenant agreement, it's set up with these animals cut in half, these two halves arranged with a path between. It's bizarre to us, 
But we see other passages, other places in Scripture where we can see that this was a traditional covenant agreement. So both parties, or in a power imbalance between a king and a servant, just a servant usually, would walk through these animals to sort of sign off on an agreement, saying, if I fail on my end, may I become like these dead animals on the ground. God promised Abraham that he'll be blessed and that he will be a blessing. And Abraham figures, okay, this is where I sign the dotted line. This is where I take responsibility for my end of the bargain. But Abraham never walks through. God, incredibly, goes through for both himself and Abraham, saying, I will hold up my end of the bargain, Abraham. But I'm committing to more than that. I'm holding up your end of the bargain. I will find a way for you to be with me. Even if and when you fail, I will stay true to my promises up to death. I bring up this story because I want to remind us we can hold on to the anchor because we have assurance that that anchor will not be moved. Not by storms, not by disease or disagreement, not by others, not even by you. God's taken responsibility for his end and God takes responsibility for your end. That anchor is not moving. It is grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And so then all we are called to do is to hold on. Third, we're called to encourage each other. So first, let us draw near. That's focus on God, right? Getting close to God. And then we're called to hold fast. And that's sort of looking to the world amidst the storms of life and the controversies and the difficulties. Whatever comes, we must hold on to God. And third, we're to look to each other. We're to consider the people around us. And let us consider, the author says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, this verse has been pulled out often. It's one of the go-tos for churches who have made the call to ignore government restrictions, to gather in person. And I don't want to walk too far down that road. I've been so grateful for our church family and the patience and the grace and the humility with which we have approached these issues. Pleasant Valley has always known us as a gentle, humble group of people. But when, you know, when uh, stuff hits the fan, sometimes true colors show up. You see what we're really made of. And so I think in the last year, and especially in the last month or two, as many have hit breaking points, we've seen the true colors of our church. And this is what I see. And I'm going to try and get through this without crying. I see a three-quarter done roof by the hands of volunteers who were out here working yesterday, led by Darren. I see people coming together to be Christ's literal hands and feet in an act of practical service. I see groups and pockets of people on Facebook, I think especially of our mums group, coming together to encourage and pray for one another, to reach out, to ask how each other are doing. I see tech issues happen during a service, and the first thing that shows up in the chat is thank you to the people who are working in the back. Thank you to our techs. Boy, it's a hard job. Boy, we appreciate what you're doing. I see what happens a few weeks ago when live streaming began and we could still invite 10 people to join us here and I worked down this list of people in our church and every phone call I made, the person on the other end said in one way or another, boy, there must be someone else who needs this more than I do. 
I see difficult journeys and situations in our church family and, and groups of people, not just leadership, not just caregivers, but you, us, all of us together, jumping into different situations to support, to bring meals, to sit with and pray with. I see phone calls and texts and emails I've already gotten since this online learning transition starting, asking how to pray for, how to connect with, how to bless, how to get groceries to people who are in isolation. I think about the youth survey that we sent out and that came back with dozens of responses, people from all across the church, including those with no family connection to our youth program, speaking about the importance and value of building up our next generation, celebrating the youth and the amazing leaders that we have, saying strongly that this is where they want to put their money. They want to put their money where their mouth is. We need to support and disciple this part of our body. Gathering together in person, it's good. And it's important. I'm grateful for the technology that allows us to gather together in this way. And I pray every week for an end to this virus, for the ability to fill up our pews in a single service again. But there are so many amazing ways that you, that we, have reflected these verses over the past year and even over the past weeks. So take that as affirmation. I believe we look like Jesus when we act like this. And also as an encouragement to keep on growing in this. It is more important than ever in these times of physical separation to keep finding creative, beautiful, Christ-like ways to encourage each other, to consider each other, to spur each other on to love and good deeds. And as we close, the author ends the section with the words, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What Jesus has done for us isn't the end of our hope. We are here in the in-between with Christ as their high priest. We can boldly draw near and hold fast and encourage each other. But we do this with an eye toward the future. Because the best is yet to come. Jesus is coming back. The world will be made perfect in new creation. We will walk with God in the garden again. There will come a time when we no longer need to draw near because we are there in his total and unfiltered presence. When we no longer need to hold fast because we are surrounded. When encouraging each other is our native language, as natural as breathing, where discouragement and discord are dead and gone and no more. So let us seek to continue to be redemptive, cross-formed people focused on the good work we have been given of calling, the calling that we have of bringing God's kingdom to life here on earth. All the more as we anticipate the full restoration, the full healing of all things. Amen.